welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everybody. And we've got an extra special guest with us today. He's the owner of the tattoo studio, Sacred Knot, and one of my personal favorite people in the entire world is Sean Parry. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. That's the, the nicest intro anyone's got so far. <laughs> <laughs> But you, I mean, I've got, I've got to say you are one of the, the nicest people that I've come across. You know, you, you tend to go out of your way to be, to help people out. So you deserve it. Oh, thank you. I think considering <laughs> uh, how many hours I spend hurting people, you know, with needles, <laughs> it must be a bonus not to have, you know, an evil person behind them wielding, inflicting them pain. <laughs> so I try to be as nice as I can. So, how how are things for you at the minute, Sean? Obviously, the the world's burning. Everything's gone a little bit insane. Have you got enough toilet roll? Is is everything <laughs> somehow? Okay? Somehow, I've consistently managed to have enough toilet roll through the whole thing. Um, yeah, I mean, um, it's a uh, it's it's pretty insane. It's crazy. I, I was I was pretty sad to to close the studio. Um, but I, I am, I'm a pretty optimistic individual, so I'm basically making the most of it. The weather is amazing and it's kind of that whole thing of having, you know, for now three weeks to just crack on with projects that I've been dreaming about having time for, for a long time. So I've been doing some more with my music, uh, which is long overdue, um, because it's always just been a hobby, like for me, art is something that I do, um, you know, as well, I say as a job, I still, after tattooing, I usually go home and draw and paint some more. Um, but still, like music has been one of those things that I, I do it out of passion and love. And I have to really be in the mood for it, whereas I can, I can draw when I'm half dead. I don't think about it. It's just as uh, second nature as breathing. Um, so I'm really enjoying uh, getting to do some of that and finishing off some blog posts and things on places I've visited and some historical stuff that that uh, that I want to share with the world. I was going to say, as somebody who's who's been lucky enough to see you perform musically, I think it's definitely something that you you should pursue further, and I think it's amazing. So that's definitely something I would recommend that you. I mean, obviously it's up to you and and, and the time you've got, but if the passion's there, I think you could go quite far with it. Well, up until now, I've made a big point of not really having any of my music online because one of the things I think uh, is so amazing about music, um, you know, so so like you know, there's the big there's the bigger uh, like arts in in uh, you know through uh, through history and and all that you know um, culture. You've got music and and you know and art and uh, you know and dance and things and you know um art is obviously one of the ones that's lasted so well through time because you know it can you can carve out into stones and stuff and but even so like music is uh you know i hate to say this as as a as a you know a tattooist and and a painter but music is a hundred times more powerful a thousand times more powerful it can reach out so much further um and people connect with it so much more and i mean i i am 
I know I, I, I'm uh, I'm Welsh and uh, and Celtic, I suppose you could say. And there's you know with uh, you know because I listened to the the one you did with Sigurdi the other day. You know he's a lovely guy, and you know he was saying about how people are doing more with the Nordic music, uh, which uh, I really enjoy as well. It's it's been you know really inspiring. Uh, but there's there's still pretty much no one out there uh, that's really fulfilling that sort of criteria for me of how they're doing it with uh, with uh, with Celtic music or especially Welsh. You know we're using inspiration more from you know let's say pre-Christianity. Um, but but saying that, I really I don't actually think I'm a very good musician, but I certainly have passion, which is you know something so i will still try and share that with people one day um because uh, i would like to hopefully inspire more people to have a go at doing something along the same lines as well hey um sean could you just uh out of I, i'm really curious to hear uh, more about what you would like to see with like uh celtic slash welsh uh music in that regard um because you know i mean i think the popular uh understanding of of what Celtic music is is sort of like that you know Enya kind of stuff and yeah I'm sure you probably mean something different so oh, yeah yeah <laughs> so um I would say like how um what Celtic music I think is sort of seen as now is pretty much uh, has the same stigma uh, from the 90s that Celtic tattooing has when that was sort of performed and executed in the 90s you know celtic tattooing was mixed in um with tribal and became you know sort of flash that was just plastered on people in you know in seaside towns all over the world and celtic music were you know you could say that it's either stuff like anya like really ethereal cheesy stuff uh or you know you've got the uh the more classic um you know the sort of irish and scottish yeah. celtic music which some of that is horribly cheesy and just made for tourists and some of it is amazing and i really enjoy mm. that sort of folk as well but what i'm sort of getting it is that same as like how sigurdi was saying you know how in the sort of uh, the ancient um icelandic poetry how there's meter and and you know and basically song within the poems already you could say the same for for um for the old welsh poetry as well like for an example you've got um um you've got the Godothin and and uh and a few other bits and pieces and it's just it's out of this world it's so complicated uh just as the Icelandic stuff as well because language in general seems to be a lot more complicated in the past and I I really struggle to write stuff that can measures up to it so but I, I still have a go but more than anything, I'm probably going to have a go at sharing some of those old bits as well. Um, and I'm trying to learn more from it as well. So just uh, very briefly, I'll give you a little example. So there's there was um, there was a little poem or a song that was sort of graffitied onto the side of the Godothan that was probably written about the 12th century or something. I'm not quite sure. But it was definitely from the Old North, a Hernogled, which was up in the around Edinburgh, and it was copied by scribes in 
Glan Conway, which is down the road from me here in North Wales. Um, and uh, so they, they made this copy of the Godothin, and someone wrote in a little poem on the side. So it's about a mother singing to her son that the father's gone hunting, and he seems to have super powers. Uh, with with like he's the best hunter. He goes off with eight slaves. He has two hunting togs called Gif and Gaff. He has a club that he calls Killer and a spear, and no animal is safe from him unless it has wings to fly away. And he hunts for boar, fish, um, stags, and lynx, which is sort of push forward the date that they think that lynx went extinct in the UK. So very briefly, it goes. Um, Paistinogaith fraith fraith, o groin bailod ban fraith, chui chui chudogaith, gochanon gochenin oithgaith. Panelai de ka de dadiri helia, a chado rarioskud a choyoenilao, evgelui goon gohoywug, gif, gaff, dali, dali, dog dog, rechethi and pierce gunghoywug, mal ban chal choyoenoywug. Pan hela hi de dadi rivanid, de de gai pen och pen oizoch pen hir. Pen grigiai rvaitha vanid, pen tursk or riadr darwanid, or saulr gehezai de dadi rigigwain, or oizoch a hiawin a hinain. Nian hai och nivai or adlain. Wow. Wow. <laughs> there's, there's something about when, when, when hearing, hearing you speak, obviously, in. in in Welsh, and I guess when you know he's Sigurdi in Icelandic, and Matthias when he speaks in Old Norse, it just puts this big smile on my face, and I'm sure probably people who are listening also get it. And it's it's just like an it's an amazement, and I'm just this typical Englishman that only can speak English and a bit uh, expects everyone to be able to speak how I speak. So it just I just get this big grin. I'm like, you know, it's just so it's so impressive to see or to hear. Well, the reason that I, I went out of my way to learn that because most of it is so old that like I don't understand or I half understand a lot of the words. But it's because I also have a burning passion for it. It just I think it's amazing. Yeah, it really is. And I and I uh, I, I have to say one of my favorite stories growing up uh, was uh, Malinogian. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm probably going to butcher uh, his name. What? How do you say Polk? Poik. Poik. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of Dovit. That's is, the is one. That yeah. 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 No, he was he was one of my my big heroes when I was uh, when I was a kid. Uh, we had a we had like a uh, sort of a, an illustrated um, version of his story, and um, yeah, I would read it over and over all the time, just like I would you know read the the Nordic stuff. So yeah, yeah, that's, uh, it's fascinating. It is. I, yeah. That's the thing is, so, I mean, I, I, um, I really love the Welsh, uh, you know, the poetry, like the, the, the Mabinogion. And for me, because say, I know we're straying a lot into the Celtic stuff here. And that's what I'm going to say is like, um, the, I feel just as passionately as that I do about the Welsh mythology. I, I, mythology is a strong word for it, you know, for the Welsh stories as I do for the, for the Scandinavian ones. Cause it's just, it's so interesting to have that small window into the past of what, uh, you know, what the people of the time were hearing and listening to and how they still have the same sort of, you know, uh, 
sort of um, ideas behind the, the, you know, the stories of what they're telling and what they're trying to teach from it and how things can go wrong to good people and how they manage to, you know, persevere and stay strong and get through it or die of a horrible death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, there's some good and great lessons in there. There's, there's, a, there's a trial at some point. Uh, uh, these, uh, uh, they, they're, they're competing over like who can hold their arm in the fire for the longest. And one of them wins, quote unquote, wins by, by holding his arm so, so long in the fire that, you know, he burns it. Yeah. yeah, what a whole, victory! The, the, yeah, what a victory! The, the, the whole moral of that is like that was stupid. <laughs> and what I think is really fascinating is like, say, how does the story with Loki how he has to make um, Skadi laugh? So you know he uh, he ties a rope to the the goat and you know ties it to his uh, his bits, slaps the goat, <laughs> and that's that mental image is as funny now as it ever would have been, you know, in the past. Um, exactly. Say, um, <laughs> the Mabinogion, there's this, there's this uh, really strange part where I, I think it's boy. I think, I think it's a. I can't remember. It's, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's boy. He tries to get with Branwen, and um, Branwen's suitor comes along and manages to sort of talk him into handing over her as, uh, as, as a wife. So she, she gives boy uh, uh, this magical bag and. He asks the other guy to step inside it, and because it's a magical bag, he falls into the bag and he ties the knot around him, and he gets all of his warriors to all come by one by one, and uh, they have they they all jokingly say, "What's in the bag?" And he says, "You know, it's a it's a badger," and they go, "Oh!" And then they give it a kick. <laughs> <laughs> so one by one, hundred of these warriors come by and go, "What's in the bag? It's a badger!" You know, kick. You know, it's 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 so bizarre, but it's still funny. So, no, it, it 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 is, and that's that's one of the things. So, uh, speaking as a mythologist myself, I mean, that's that's what I'm trained in, and I'd say that you can definitely call this mythology as well. Um, we we have a tendency to think of mythology as something that has to do with like these ancient gods, and 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 that these ancient gods have to be sort of like you know some some powerful beings that are floating around up there somewhere or something like that. But um, when you, when you look into mythologies all across the world, they are more like what we would call these folk tales and, and sort of like silly legends or curious legends or however we want to talk about it. Right. Um, they have all of these weird elements. Um, uh, you know, it's a, there, like for instance, over here in in um, in the American Southwest, so many um, Native Americans have uh, stories about uh, coyote, the uh, coyote uh, god or or figure, right? And like there, there's one about how uh, he like runs into some place and then gets like attacked by flying vaginas and flying penises <laughs> and, and all of, like you're just like what's going on here and of course these these stories they, they seem kind of silly when you're just reading them like that but they they have real meaning they have significance and a good example of that is actually the story about Loki tying his well testicles to a goat um that's actually a way of punishing uh, adulterers in Scandinavia. Ah. Uh, so there's actually like a cultural knowledge behind it. Like it's it's both funny and really silly, and also it 
tells you something about how they actually dealt with people who did that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I wouldn't, yeah, like, so, I wouldn't so, like to go through that. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> it was something about, like, I think it, in, in Sweden, you had to, like, tie tie your, your testicles uh, to, to the goat and then, like, go through town, <laughs> you know, doing that. Um, so, yeah. And, and that's the same with the, you know, the, the Celtic stories. I'm sure that when you start digging into the, the, the culture that lies behind, you'll find that some of these... Uh, curious and funny in, uh, elements in the story is they're definitely going to have some real cultural meaning that was very significant at one point. It, def- it definitely makes me wonder what people will think in a thousand years if we get through uh, the current crisis. Um, you know, we're, we're looking back a thousand years now and, and thinking these are a little bit odd and a little bit strange. So what do we believe now that, in, you know, in 500,000 years, people are going to look back and go, yeah, they were they were insane as if they did as if they did that oh yeah i mean th- th- just think about it south park is hilarious right um south park is joking about all of these things that are you know essentially serious political topics right um social issues that affect people in reality out there um so a- again like in a thousand years somebody would be looking at south park and be like well, that's a bunch of silly bullshit right there. <laughs> but again, behind it, there's an actual social and cultural truth, right? But that's what also is kind of interesting to think that possibly like many of the stories that we have from the past are the equivalent of, say, South Park, as opposed to the real Shakespeare that was going on at the time or something, and that's all we have. Imagine if in a thousand years somebody finds the episode where Randy... <laughs> <laughs> where they where they learnt out of their mouths now because they're gonna, if they find that episode they're going to think that's how we were exactly and that's the point that's the point that's that's important to keep it in mind because also think about this um, there's probably more people out there who are seeing South Park episodes than going to Shakespeare uh, uh, performances right um, not I mean Shakespeare is still very popular and and an important uh, cultural uh product but but there's south park has probably overtaken shakespeare at this point in, in terms of delivering messages to people right i would say that on that note something that i think is quite interesting uh, i i'm not sure how much weight there is behind it but i think that you could say that some of the things with shakespeare shakespeare is like is the same as the you know the uh the greek tragedies how you know, we have made them sort of very academic and highbrow where, I mean, I heard that because uh, I was looking into the language uh, that was in use in English in the time of Shakespeare and how it would have changed a lot of the meanings behind some of the lines in Shakespeare, like how there's there's the, the line in one of the plays where it's like hour by hour we ripe and ripe. But in their pronunciation of the time, it would have been pronounced horror by horror, we rape and rape. <laughs> so it was that double play. And it, I think it was one of the reasons that Shakespeare was so popular at the time was because it spoke to, you know, people that just wanted fart jokes, just or rape jokes, <laughs> just as much as it would have to, you know, to the Queen Elizabeth. But, you know, who knows? 
No, I, th- I think you're totally right. And I mean, I don't know much about Shakespeare, but I'm, I'm no, me neither. <laughs> very, I'm just I'm very certain though that uh, as as of you know as a type of literature and drama at the time, uh, a lot of it was still very controversial in different ways, and and that's something you yeah you you're right to say that well it's been made too academic with like Shakespeare with the Greek stuff or the Roman stuff. Um, and the same with this, the Nordic stuff. The saga literature has been cleaned up in so many ways. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of penis jokes in the saga literature, but they they don't come through in translation because you know translators have deliberately cut them out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think that's such a shame because again, like it just it, it's just to say like how Sigurdi mentioned about in Icelandic, you know, they purposely had the the sounds in the uh, the rolling of the R, the rrr, to sort of um, you know make slight reference to the growling of the wolf, the the you know the uh, the penis jokes and things, sort of I think I feel like that is also an integral part in the, the storytelling to sort of add in those those light hearted bits in the middle of uh, all of the stuff. I've, Absolutely, you know I've worked a lot with. Um, with tattooing, uh, you know the, the the Scandinavian stories, and how there's always these, you know, there's obviously there's the epic moments in it, say you know the Twilight of the Gods, um, but then in the middle of all of that, there's there's a boot that's just made out of old scraps of leather that are all been saved by, you know, by uh, leather workers or shoemakers, you know, and it's such a such a like a playful little detail in the moment of of all of this chaos and madness of you know and death in the story and i think that that's that's a shame that you know i i feel like uh say um like the show vikings uh it makes a point of always been serious and dark and you know obviously they put the odd joke in there every now and then but i think that it, it sort of portrays a lot of it in a very particular light which is obviously very very modern and yeah sort of sucks out some of the fun of it literally i think you're right about that you know we, we got so many uh, examples of, uh, of the, the the one that you mentioned right there we, the same with the the ship of fingernails right that, <laughs> that comes at you at ragnarok and it's like then Snurry adds, like, and that's why you need to cut your fingernails, <laughs> you know, like, uh, just like these silly little uh, uh, mundane aspects of it. And they're, they're everywhere. And and it, I think you, I agree completely with you that you know, Vikings, they uh, they miss that point when they try to be so serious and epic and, <laughs> and, and all that stuff. I think it's just in general kind of like a modern representation of a viking is this big bearded warrior and he's very is very serious you know they came and they they rape and pillaged and and did what they wanted and that's kind of what people get in their mind and don't almost don't think about the they you know they are still humans they're still like a good fat jerk yeah (laughs) yeah i think as well like that that whole idea of um you know the vikings just you know I, I've sort of noticed uh, in the last, I don't know, I, well, basically since I started getting into all of this stuff, you know, um, probably, I'd say probably, you know, like 15, 20 years ago, whatever, 
it's gone through all of these changes. You know, like there was the big thing for a long time about like the push about saying, oh, you know, um, uh, well, you know, most of them were farmers. You know, they weren't all like this. And then, and then, like you know, many other aspects. So big, you know, and, and that's usually reflecting like what we want to to think about them, so we can relate to them more. And I think that that's a very um, dangerous sort of approach. I don't. I mean, I've. Um, I think that it's fascinating to imagine that you know we have more information getting thrown at us through our phones today, probably in two or three hours than they would have ever received in their whole life, some of these individuals. Obviously, they would have done very different things, their life experiences and their knowledge uh, on on things was, was completely different. But, I mean, I've, I've tried many times uh, to sort of put myself in the shoes of the artists that were creating these these things. And for me, that's one of the ways that I can get closest to the artist of the past and what they were, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of, um, well, you can literally tell, you know, for a start, if they're left or right-handed, you know, uh, if they, if their eyes were slightly crooked in their head by how they draw a center line, um, their preferences for shapes. And obviously, you know, the, the, all of the, the, the tradition that would have been behind them before they, made a mark on anything you know like it's uh that's one one aspect of getting close to the artist of the past but that's obviously that's a, such a tiny little window into what these people would have been thinking and feeling you, you know like say you know some of the bits of graffiti on the path you know on them uh, so i i just went to um what's it called I went to Orkney recently, and we went to the Maze Howe tomb, and that's a that's a, an amazing like late Neolithic tomb. And the Vikings broke in one winter around Christmas, supposedly. They have the exact date of when they think it happened, and they they hung out in there and did lots of graffiti. And sorry to, to interrupt you. That's that's where we have like one of the mo- most lewd. Uh, runic graffiti is from. I think it just says or something like that. In all those fooders. Sometimes men never change, do they? Oh no! <laughs> they, I mean, they, there's there's one specific spot in. So when you go through the entrance on your left hand side, there's a there's a like a little crack where the, one of the stones broke when they put them together. Possibly, maybe it was already there. And it looks like this guy that the uh, the the tall guy told us that. They reckoned that this guy was about five foot two or something, whatever. He was a specific height that they can tell. That he put his foot in this crack as he was writing the letters up, and he was left-handed. And he got to a point where he couldn't do it any higher, so he went from going up to just going sideways. And they can see the the arch uh, from where his hand was trying to reach, you know, to to finish off this. And then on the other side of the tomb, there's this. Um, beautiful uh carving of like it's like a wolf or something that has scales all over it i've been trying to remaster the drawing and i've found the i've I've, the earliest pictures i found of it you know have a lot more detail than it has now because it's really rubbed off they said like how at one point they were just letting kids do rubbings of the carvings and stuff and it's 
like uh, one side of it's completely gone. But like just as all of these people were just messing around doing graffiti, whether it was done at the same time or not, someone else on the other side of the room, or maybe in a different time period, you know, spent ages doing this beautiful little picture when they're all just writing dick jokes all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I, I think this is a really interesting subject because, um, I mean, as as somebody who has uh, at least worked with this, with runes and rune carvings in in an academic context, right? Uh, I mean, there's standard things that you learn about how they carved runes and uh, the styles of runes and so on. Um, but we learn it from sort of the linguistic side of things, right? We, you approach it with uh, like the, how, how did they organize the text to let you read it and, and so on. So it, to me, this is really, it's really interesting to hear it from, from the artist's perspe- perspective. And I, I would love to hear what you have to say about, you know, the, the styles and runes, uh, rune carvings that, that we find in Scandinavia. If you, if you've been looking into some of the stuff that we, for instance, see in Sweden, they have so many runestones over there with so much interesting art on them. Oh yeah, I've I've been over and I've seen some of it, and especially from the early Viking Age, some of the stones, like the you know they have amazing rune work on them, but then the pictures on them, they they just they make so little sense. You can't tell what the hell they're supposed to be. They just look haunting. They they um they don't follow any of the. There was this one particular stone. I, I feel really bad that I can't remember what it's called. It was in um they built a shed over the whole thing. They had a big description on the wall of all of the, the, the you know, the um, uh, translations of it all. Is it but the Rick stone? I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't remember. Like big, big rectangular kind of. I think so. Yeah. 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 And the faces of the creatures on that, they're, 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 they're really scary. That you know, you don't really know why. They're just, and again, like you know, the, you know, the, with the runes, they're, they're pretty haunting. Uh, I think they, it says on it something like uh, these runes were given to us by the gods. Uh, it says that in a part of it, along with some other bits. And then they just have these uh, monsters, you know, just sort of screaming in your face on the side of the stone. Okay, yeah, that, that's probably not the Rook stone. It doesn't have any uh, images on it, as far as I remember. It's the longest uh, runic text, though. Um, the Rook stone. But yeah, no, it's... But yeah, well, I'll try and dig thing. it out and I'll send it to you. Oh, yeah. that doesn't really help the listeners, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, there, there are so many really interesting and spectacular ones in Sweden. Um, the uh, Ramson uh, stone, for instance, is the, that's the largest runic carving that exists. It's about four meters. Um, and what is that? Like eight, nine feet um, in American terms. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, it's got the story of Sigurd the Dragon Slayer, right? Um, the images where you basically, I think it's about eight, eight different components um, of, of the story from about Sigurd, um, basically killing the dragon, taking the heart and roasting it, um, killing uh, Regin the smith, uh, who was, you know, his foster father who told him to do all of this, but also tried to trick him. Um, and then the birds that are sitting in the tree telling Sigurd that his foster father is going to trick him. That's also part of it. And then, of course, his horse 
carrying the gold. So like you basically have all of these components that we know from Eddic poetry from Iceland. We know it from uh, Faroese ballads and Danish folktales, like all of this stuff, right? We know it also from uh, Norwegian stave churches where you have the carvings. I think it's the Hulestad, uh stave church that has the carving of, uh, of, of some of these scenes as well. And it's just interesting to think about the person who carved this Ramsund stone in, it's from around the year 1000, um, must have had like something very specific in mind when they chose to put down these images uh, in particular, precisely these images, right? They're, um, they're taking part of a, of a much longer narrative that we know from the sagas, for instance, um, and then putting it on that stone. And that's, I just find that incredibly fascinating. Also the fact that, you know, on this carving, uh, there's also a random dog or otter or something that we can't really identify. No, <laughs> like the, no, no story includes that dog that is otherwise there in the carving, right? <laughs> so is there any reason that there's such a high concentration of runestones in Sweden? Is there any kind of reason why that seems to be, or is it just, it is? There are different explanations. Uh, one of them is, uh, so uh, just to, to give you some brief data on on runestones in Scandinavia, uh, there's, I think, about 400, maybe 450-ish in Denmark, uh, only 150, around 150 to 60 in, 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 in Norway. And and then uh, what is it like, eleven hundred in Sweden, <laughs> and like or maybe even more. I can't I can't remember. It's uh, I'm bad at numbers. That's what I always uh, tell people. I'm a, I'm a lit major. I never really learned math, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm bad at remembering numbers. But I th I think it's like in the thousands when it comes to Sweden. Maybe like maybe even more. And yeah, so what it looks like is that, um. You can sort of uh, make a, 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 a cut and say from the year 1000 uh, up to the year 1000, that's when we have the era of so-called Danish dominance. And after the year 1000, uh, it's Swedish dominance when it comes to runestones. And it is very obvious, I think at least, that the tradition of carving runestones uh, occurs in Scandinavia as under, under influence from England. Uh, from what the Scandinavians are learning about monuments, monuments and design of monuments in in the English um, and Scottish area in particular, and and they're, they're taking some of that and and employing it in in their uh, runestone carvings in in, in the Viking Age. Um, and there are some runestones that are older, much older than the Viking Age, but. Um, it is very obvious that that there is so much like artistic influence from the British Isles uh, on the Scandinavian uh, runestones. But uh, an important feature of the Swedish runestones is that they are, um, at least you know, from after a thousand, when when there's like an explosion of runestones, so to speak, like there are so many of them being made, especially in the Upland area, is that they they're being made under the influence of Christianity. We're seeing um, the rune stones as an old pre-Christian medium being employed 
to signify that you're now a Christian um, in in the Swedish area. Uh, aforementioned Ramsund stone uh, is carved in context of a bridge that is being made. It's actually a woman who uh, uh, who commissioned the rune stone and the bridge, um, and she's signifying I'm a Christian, I'm a landowner, and I am also a, a part of uh, creating infrastructure for my uh, community by building this bridge. And that was a way for the church at the time in Sweden to um, build uh, an infrastructure, better infrastructure in uh, in Sweden. Um, they basically said, well, if you if you landowners over here, you build bridges and such things, then uh, then then you're gonna then you're gonna go to heaven. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like it's a basic way of like uh, improving infrastructure in Sweden um, uh, by also you know giving access to heaven. <laughs> um, and you see it in Denmark too, like one of the most famous ones, right? The Yelling Runestone, which is known as the, the birth certificate of Denmark because this is where Harold Bluetooth says that he Christianized the Danes. He also says he conquered Norway. We don't know if any of it is true, but there's a nice uh, runestone. And he also built uh, the largest bridge um, to have existed in Scandinavia up until... I mean, it wasn't in existence after him, pretty much. I, I don't think it was used... Um, uh, it, it fell apart at some point uh, after his reign. But uh, the Rauning Inge Bridge uh, near the uh, the town of Weiler in Denmark um, was a uh, about eight nine hundred meters long. Uh, yeah, that was the largest bridge uh, that we know of uh, up until modern times in in Scandinavia. Um, so yeah, that was the thing. Oh. Is is that the rune stone with the? It looks like the image of Christ yes. on the front of it. Yeah, okay. A very derpy Christ. Yeah, that's one of. Yeah, a very badass type. Like he's just standing there, yeah. <laughs> no cross or anything. He's just. <laughs> but that is also another thing, right? The 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 way that they uh, represented Christ was not like the suffering Christ that we're used to. Uh, the suffering Christ shows up after the plague, pretty much. Um, wonder why. Um, but before then, in in Scandinavia, we have like this very stern-looking king hanging on a cross, and you're wondering why is this king hanging on a cross? And they probably wanted that too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to elaborate on uh, what you just said. Um, so I've I've um, I've visited the Isle of Man quite a lot in the last few years because it's always captivated me. Like, uh, so I I am. Um, I grew up on the Great Orm in North Wales, and Orm comes from Yom. Uh, they, they reckon that the, the Scandinavian sailors named it that going past, if not uh, from it having origins of... Um, they think that maybe there's a Viking hall um, up on the Great Orm here as well, but they're not allowed to excavate it because they're not allowed to excavate anything because of the flora and fauna. There's a, um, there's a, they call it the, uh, the Ice Age flower or something. Um, that it's it only grows here and one of the like cliff edge somewhere close by. Uh, but but anyway, I'm I'm getting off the point. So from when I was a kid, on a like, on a very clear day, you can see the Isle of Man. Um, or, or that's what I was always told. I never actually saw it until I was about twenty five, and and then since then I see it all the bloody time. 
so I started going over to the Isle of Man uh, quite a few times recently because it has such a rich um, a sort of uh, collection of well rune stones and you know picture stones. I don't know what else to call them. Uh, so there's they reckoned that. I mean, it, the Isle of Man is sort of the, it's it's like a, it was like a melting pot for, for, for you know, for stone carvers and everything of the, the Viking Age. Um, I want to say it's the equivalent of, what's the island off Sweden? What's that called again? Gotland. Gotland. It's the Gotland of the UK, the Isle of Man. Um, so... One of the things that I found really fascinating when I started going around the stones there is because I think this ties into what you were saying about the whole thing with rune stones and Christianity. There's such uh, an amazing like uh, array of images of you know Norse uh, origin things on all of these crosses, and many of the dragons and everything that come off these are what the Viking reenactors of today use on their belt buckles and to ornament all of their stuff because the artwork was amazing and beautiful and you know very bold which is something that people really like as well i think that that's one of the reasons that you know the people are really connected now with the uh you know the agus hammer and the, the vegfus here obviously that you know it doesn't matter that they're not you know a viking age people just think they're bold and beautiful and i like it uh, I, I'm guilty of it, and when I first started getting into all of this stuff, I I did a, a Vegvasir on my kneecap as well, and I I still love it, but you know, but I think at the time I did think it was Viking, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> uh, anyway. So what I was going to say is, I'm, you know, even though there's, uh, you know, the the Christian crosses, they, you know, they're covered with um, mostly with stories of Sigurd. Uh, which is something that I want to ask you about in a minute, uh, Matthias. But as as well as that, like there are uh, the Norse gods are on them as well. Um, I've I've sort of I've thought a lot about about why they're there, and mostly it seems, especially in England, the Saxon crosses. You know, if they you know, because it's usually the Saxon crosses where you have the depictions of say Thor fighting Jormungandr on the fishing boat and all of that. And in that story, he fails. You know, Thor fails to, you know, complete his task. And then right above it on the, the carving is God, you know, herding some sheep or something. Something that looks kind of very trivial to us now. But it shows God completing his task with flying cows. You know, he's, he's doing a great job. The Norse gods are failing. Mm. And, and then on the, 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 you know, some of the ones on the Isle of Man, this is where it's like a slightly different case because it's not just about putting the Norse gods down. There's, let's say there's the famous image of, um, you know, you can say it's Odin or Vidar and he has his foot in the, the, the mouth of the wolf. I personally think it's Vidar because he, in the carving, he has a really built up right arm and he's supposed to be able to rip the jaw off, isn't he? So it makes sense. Um, so, but on directly on the other side of the, the stone, because it is part of a broken cross stone, uh, which I think a lot of people overlook right on the other side, there's a guy with a snake underneath him, but he's sort of standing heroically with a cross in one hand and holding a Bible on the other. Um, <laughs> but a, 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 apart from that, like, um, it's also one of the, the richest sources of images of the Norse gods. 
it's the only depiction I've ever seen of Heimdall. It's um, it's you've really got to look for it. I can't remember the name of the church, uh, but it's on the the north of the island, and they cemented all of the stones inside the church for safekeeping. They did obviously a lot of damage to them, but they thought they were doing good at the time, and they probably did better because some of the people. I spoke to, they said the stones were outside when they were young and they used to climb all over them when they were kids. So it's better that they're inside at least. So this one stone, it's set nearly completely up against the wall and you can't actually see around it. So I used my mobile phone to go around the side and take some pictures of it. And there's this uh, amazing image of Heimdall and he's got his hand on, on his sword and he's holding a horn that's like five times as long as him going right across the stone. Uh, cool. I could, it could be Gabriel or someone, but you know, why would he have a sword? Well, I mean, that's that's the thing, right? I mean, there's with a lot of these uh, images in scholarship, there's there's a battle. <laughs> you, do, you have the ones who are like, this is you know, images of the Nordic gods, and the ones who are like, no, no, this is all Christian imagery. And you know what? It's probably both. <laughs> if you ask me, right? And, and that was the whole thing. It was about that whole merging, wasn't it, of the idea of saying, oh, boy, they're the same people. How how could you not see that they're exactly the same? Yeah. No, it, I, it, it, this is really important, I think, to understand. Um, nowadays, we have like this idea, like, oh, Christianity simply just like came, showed up, and then everybody was Christian and forgot about you know that past. That's really not what happened, right? <laughs> like, um, I, I think it, it was... Um, my uh, my friend and colleague uh, Rune uh, Jane Rasmussen, who uh, runs the channel Nordic Animism. Oh yeah, I know Rune. He's a lovely guy. Yeah, he's great. Um, and Rune says that he always he always sees these scholars talking about um, uh, oh uh, Snorri Sturluson when he was writing about the Nordic gods in Iceland in the 1200s. He was writing so and so many centuries too, basically after the conversion, and they make a big deal out of that. But as Rune points out, it's like it's only two centuries. That's not a lot of time uh, when you think about um, the ways that society works back then. As you just pointed out, right? Uh, back then, most of these people probably um, didn't receive uh, much more <laughs> information than you know what what we get in an hour, you know, in a whole lifetime. Um, and and yeah, things moved slowly, and people in so many different ways, reinterpreted old patterns of culture, old gods into new Christian saints, into new imagery in, in so many different ways. So yeah, I, 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 I think that um, even, even, even the most Christian uh, representations from this period of the Viking Age are, are as heathen as they are Christian in, in so many different ways. Um, the, 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 going back to the Yelling Runestone, it's a great example of that. Uh, again, like the, um, it's 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 such an awesome fusion of of uh, pagan and or pre-Christian and uh, and and Christian imagery. Um, you have the runes that, for these people, were intrinsically tied to the pre-Christian culture. Um, I, I'm pretty confident that you know the average Viking Age person in Scandinavia would have considered the runes something that had come from Odin, uh, that we had learned from Odin. I'm I'm sure of that. Um, but you take them, 
and then you organize them in the same uh, style as you would in a illuminated manuscript that you know from the church at the time. Um, you even put the nice little ornamentation around it. That that's what that stone is all about, right? It's Harold uh, Bluetooth who's telling the people that the book has now come. Look, I put it on a stone. <laughs> so, so he's taking the traditional medium of the stone and all the artistic aspects of that traditional medium and then uh, fusing it with the written book medium and and telling people, now we're Christian, you know, very pagan way, basically. <laughs> and I think it's, this, it's the exact same that's happening uh, on the Isle of Man. And... Um, and I'm sure that to, it's, to some extent, at least people like Harold Bluetooth, they learned that from, from that culture, what I would call the Herberno Norse culture that emerges in, in the, uh, archipelago between Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and the North of England. It's funny that you say Wales in that because, I mean, there's quite a lot that's known about uh, the Viking impact on Ireland and, and England. There's a little bit less that we know about any of that to do with Scotland. And then for some reason, there's next to nothing that they know about the Vikings in Wales. It's so strange. Yeah. Yeah, like, it actually is. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a, there's obviously, as you will know, there's references to, say, uh, you know, their, their dealings in, um, in well, Bretland, uh, as, as the, I think they called it, you know, Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, but... But they seem to know next to nothing about where what they were actually doing uh, around here, and 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 as I said, you know, I can see Isle of Man from here. Uh, they would have been going past all the time from from the Mersey, uh, in you know, around Liverpool to uh, Ireland. So, it, it, but for some reason, there's just not been much work done on any of that. I mean, I know that there's certainly. Um, there's a lot of input of Scandinavian art in sort of crosses and things like that from the Viking Age, what we call the Viking Age, you know, in Wales. But they know nothing about where the settlements were, if they had any. You know, they they normally just say, "Oh, they just didn't bother." Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's right. <laughs> you know, no. it's it's, a, it's it's really interesting. I think most of all of this, one of the big problems with the Viking Age is that a lot of you know, the research follows sensations, right? That's why we know so much about the Danelaw and the great heathen army, but uh, much less about, you know, the different kinds of uh, ways that people have been interacting in Wales, for instance, or Strathclyde, or uh, and we're only now learning a little bit more about the Hebrides and, and so on, because, you know, um, it, some have started taking interest in that. We can... Uh, go to the Baltic um, as another great example of this. So the the Baltic countries, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, we have so little knowledge about the interactions between Scandinavians and the Baltic peoples over there. And it's because it was never really the same level of war and contentiousness and, and whatever, right? Um, it kind of looks like you know, those people on the other side over there, on the other side of the Baltic Sea, they're like the buddies. We we hang out with them. Um, I mean, we, there, there's evidence of Scandinavian presence there, um, but it looks like it, they just like came, 
settled some places, integrated in, in a relatively peaceful way, and used the area for traveling through, right? And this could be the same with, with Wales. It could be the same with different places in in the British Isles where, you know, the interest was not warfare or taking land in the same way, but alliances and um, mutual um, uh, help, um, probably because there was a common enemy that, the Saxons. that they were fighting, right? <laughs> the Saxons, yeah. <laughs> well, there's certainly, um, I certainly know of some, some examples of that. It said that, again, hopefully you know more about this uh, than I do, but was it um, Harold Hardruller's son uh, joined forces with um, the, the Red Devil of North Wales, as he was known as, I can't remember his name. They called him the Red Devil, that was his nickname anyway. And they went raiding into, into the Saxon lands together. And it's one of the reasons that... Um, what was his name? Um, but Harold Godwinson retaliated. Um, I think it was because they actually destroyed a Norman horse encampment in England, and he retaliated by rooting them out under cover of darkness, and he fleed and uh, eventually got killed by his own men, the Red Devil. Uh, but yeah, and then there was a later case of that as well, where there was a prince of North Wales that had a um, a Viking Irish mother, and he was in hiding for most of his life, and, and he gathered a band of mercenaries. It was in the, it was around twelve hundred. It was certainly after ten sixty six, where you know, obviously that's the end of the Viking Age officially. But they, um, he gathered up a, an army of um, you know mercenaries and came in, raided around here. Not raided actually. He he burnt down or he attacked the castle that was under Ganwyr. And apparently the mercenaries were angry that they weren't allowed to go Viking because it's like, no, I actually want these lands. You're not allowed to do it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, the, the, I've said this so many times. Um, the problem with understanding the Viking Age in in the British Isles is this like national compartmentalization that has happened, right? You have uh, Norwegians claiming um, their bits and pieces of of, of the Vikings in England, and you have uh, the Danes doing the same thing. Um, then you have the Scots who have been very busy, uh, you know, developing their their distinct identity from from you know so many centuries of having to deal with the English. Then you have the English who have been busy doing the same thing and seeing the Scandinavians as outsiders. Um, the Normans uh, as like these French invaders and the Welsh is in all of this, like right there in the middle of all of this, right? And and the Irish too, right? Uh, because of so much infighting over like modern current identities, right? We don't have the best full picture of what did that actually look like back then. And what I'm seeing uh, from my side of things is that, well... From 800 and onwards, what we have is an integration of peoples, of different types of peoples. We have Scandinavians coming in, integrating with different um, um, uh, ethnicities in the British Isles. Um, which is why we have, for instance, the Hiberno Norse as, as a distinct culture, right? That's a Irish, uh, Scandinavian, uh, Scottish Scandinavian uh, mix 
you know, there, there was examples of that on the stones in the Isle of Man with the family names and the names. You could see that they were clearly, you know, they, they were a little bit of both of them in the name. So it wasn't just like, you know, they only took some swirls out of the artwork and, you know, applied that to their stuff because they liked it. They really were marrying yeah. into each other's families and stuff. And as I said Absolutely. about the Prince of North Wales that had, the, you know, the Viking Irish mother. And that's exactly what is happening in uh, Orkneys and Shetlands, the Hebrides, uh, Faroes, uh, Iceland as well. There's uh, integration of these uh, different cultures there. And um, and like as we talked about in our episode on Rollo, um, the, the Norman invasion was was also a it's like at least like Scandinavian descended invasion <laughs> that we're dealing with. Um, and uh, it's it's all a big mix. Of different peoples from many different places uh, that are making the best of their uh, cultural components. In um, you know, it's it's interesting to see how these things have played out when we talk about um, the the Scottish Isles, because um, what we see is that places like Shetland and Orkney, we have a blanketing of of Scandinavian place names. So the old Pictish and Gaelic place names they disappear for some reason. Um, and then influx of Scandinavian place names. We have uh, a lot of Scandinavian archaeology there. We can see like longhouses and uh, you know Viking style uh, buildings. Um, but when we look at it genetically, there's still a continuation of the the old uh, uh, populations there. Uh, the the Picts and the Gaelic they don't disappear. So there's a full integration of peoples there. Well, that's exactly the same as the British people and the Germanic people. You yeah. know, the Germanic yeah. language overtook completely, but the British people just became a part of it as well. Exactly, and um, and so so pre- previously in earlier times, people have been talking about like this genocide, right? Because they, this was typically pre World War Two, where you know being tough, genocidal Germanic was a fashionable thing, right? And uh, then, you know, people have wised up and realized, wait, actually, it's probably more interesting to, to look at uh, how things really were, you know, <laughs> and things were, you know, interactive. People um, established uh, um, families that were, you know, of, of all, both and all of these ethnicities and cultural relations, right? Yeah. I am. Um, so I'm just going to say something that I think is an interesting fact. Uh, before uh, before I ask you a question about um, um, about uh, Sigurd, so I heard recently that in the Norman invasion, amongst the Normans there would have been uh, you know Breton knights, you know, and they would have been more sort of Celtic in origin, or you know, and they might have still had some of the stories uh, with them that they grew up with, you know, like the Mabinogion and things like that. At least stories that were the same sort of vein. And then when those uh, Breton Norman knights went to Wales and heard the bards telling their stories about the Mabinogion and stuff, they were the ones that made it popular and took it back to France. And that's how the Arthurian stuff went mental. Oh. And, yeah. And that's obviously, I, I, so I hear anyway, but I, I was pretty fascinated to hear that because not only would they have spoke a similar language, just as supposedly you can still... I'm told that, like, as a Welsh speaker, that I'm supposed to be understand. I should be able to understand, you know, Breton speakers, but 
I, honestly, I feel bad saying this. It just sounds like French to me. But <laughs> <laughs> I know I shouldn't say that, but it's true. But still, I can hear them, the, you know, in the numbers and things like that. Like, you know, we still have a lot of uh, common language. But, um, and that's one of the interesting things is the stories of King Arthur and uh, Murthin Wicht or Merlin. They are the ones that seem to have overtaken after Sigurd because the stories of Sigurd were popular from, say, the seventh century and stuff, I believe, with, or at least the eighth, eighth century with, you know, the Saxons. You know, there's that beautiful Frank's casket. The name is, is misleading. It, they think it was made around uh, Lindisfarne, and mm-hmm. it has uh, the stories of, it has a lot of stories of Sigurd and some of uh, uh, the Smith for Lund and on the side of the box. Are you familiar with it? Yep, yep. Yeah. Or just for the, you know, just for the, the people listening. On the side of this box, it has um, an image of the Lund giving a bowl that's supposed to have been made out of um, the king's son's skull and he's handing it to to his daughter and it's supposed to, you know, make her pass out and he's going to, you know, basically going to rape her before he escapes. And and then on other section, sections of the box, there's... Um, there's the, uh, the there's the uh, Romans attacking Jerusalem. There's um, there's uh, Romulus and Remus and the wolf. And there's there's another panel uh, where where no one really knows what's going on. It it seems to be the seated creature with a bird head or something and a warrior praying. And there's a burial mound and three women that people think are the spinners. Then it's made out of whalebone and it has uh, Roman text on it, as well as Saxon runes, which are incredibly close, close to Anglo-Saxon in appearance to me alone. Uh, so that was an, a really common story that the Christians seem to have latched onto and have allowed. And I, I've never really quite understood why the Christians seem to have been like, well, this this story has clearly got a connection to, to uh, our story, so let's just roll with it. We'll just push this one and eventually, you know, phase it out. So what what do you think on that? Okay, so first of all, um, I th- the the reason this this is a, so Sigurd as a story is is just uh, fascinating in and of itself, right? As we just talked about, we have the biggest runic carving um, is is his story. Um, he shows up on stave churches in, in Norway, and it's known from ballads and folk tales and uh, the Danish area and the. Uh, Faroese uh, uh, islands, and uh, of course we know uh, most of. So, Eddic poetry is usually connected to Nordic mythology and the, the gods, right? But most of the Eddic poetry is actually about Sigurd. <laughs> most of the poems that exist out there, um, he is mentioned in Snorri Sturluson's Edda. His story is in there as well. Um, he appears in carvings in in the. British Isles. Um, so this was the one of the most important stories, apparently, uh, back then. And why that is, that's a good question. Well, um, there are two things, I think, that, that are important here. Apart from the fact that it's a great story. <laughs> Apart from the fact that it's a great story, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, but so the origin of this story seems to be 
um, this like southern Rhineland area, Burgundy in uh, in in France, um, like between Burgundy and Bavaria, basically that area um, uh, uh, where some you know historical events that might relate to the Huns and their invasions and the, uh, uh, take place, and that creates that story of the hero who slays the dragon. And Sigur, there might have been a historical figure that's not entirely sure. It's it's more uh, safe to say that Gunnar um, was a, a real historical figure. Uh, Atli, who's, you know, the evil guy, or one of the evil guys, at least, in the story, he's definitely a historical figure, because he's Attila the Hun. We know this. <laughs> it's the same name. Atli comes from Attila. Um so that's that's at least uh, some of the historical foundations for this uh, historical process is taking place in the 400s in that area down there, um, and then the story just you know goes northwards right with the Rhine, um, it flows flows out with the Rhine, and in the five five hundreds what do we have? Well, the we have the Franks have established themselves as a kingdom in. You know that Belgian um, northern uh, French area, and that's becoming like the power hub of Europe at the time. And they have trade ports that are trading with uh, the Anglo-Saxons and also with the Scandinavians, the Frisians, and that's how this story seems to be proliferating through this this network of of interactions. Um, this is also the origin of the Viking Age, the 500s and the so-called Emporia or Vix, right? We know them from Hamwich, uh, Ipswich, and so on. Those are old trade ports that used to trade with the uh, continent and also with Scandinavia. Um, and what we can see is Ripa in southern Denmark is one of the earliest trade ports in uh, in Scandinavia. And... There's a mixed culture happening there. Scandinavians and Frisians and Saxons are interacting with each other in that area. And there's a presence of Frisians. And this is probably also where we see Scandinavians picking up the stories of Wayland and uh, Sigurd, the dragon slayer. Um, that's sort of like the portal for, for this story to get into Scandinavia. And the most important thing uh, for the individual, I think, in that period of time, from the 500s up to the thousands when he appears on that uh, uh, runestone in Sweden, the most important thing is that he is a story of this, uh, you know, the, the typical knight story, the, the capable man who goes out and... Um, um, gets the gold and gets the lady, right? That's the kind of Viking story that we want to hear when we're Vikings, right? Uh, that's definitely part of it. That's one of the reasons that it's popular. Then there's, of course, also the tragedy of the all that, you know, he screws up and he, um, well, uh, he, uh, <laughs> he dies from that. And that's also an important uh, lesson, right? <laughs> this uh, the important lesson of, uh, of, of don't, don't, don't cock up, man. Um, when you're, when you said that you were going to marry this Valkyrie, don't run off with 
that lady over there instead. That's just that's dumb, <laughs> you know. Then you have the whole drama, right? You have the drama of um, of the family being dispossessed, um, the evil king taking uh, um, uh, the, the the possessions of the family. That's another aspect that is really important as well, right? The, the, the disowned um, hero, noble person, right? We know this story from so many other, um, or we know this type of narrative from so many other stories, and then. Then there's the last bit, and that is the the dragon, fighting the dragon, right? That is a motif that some would say probably comes from Christianity. St. George and the dragon, right? We know him pretty well. Um, <laughs> St. Michael, uh, right? Uh, and the dragon. And this... St. George. Well, I mean, there's a different... Uh, different. How is it? You also have a St. Michael uh, fighting a dragon, Uh that's another version of it. <laughs> oh, okay. That's one I've never, I've never heard no, of. It's a, the, the, see, that's the thing in the in the medieval period. That's like the one of the most important uh, stories, and because it, of course, symbolizes God's fight against evil, and we have you know the biblical uh, version with Leviathan, um, and here's the interesting thing. In uh, there's definitely a, a sort of like a tendency in the Viking Age to interpret Thor's fight, uh, fishing for the Midgard serpent, as a version of this story as well. And that's why uh, we get to the whole subject of whether or not he fails, right? As you talked about earlier, Sean. In, um, so in Snorris Etta, Snorris Sturluson uh, writes... Um, he puts it in the mouth of Haur, one of the three Aesir who's, who's uh, saying this or telling the story. He says, um, yes, uh, uh, then then Hemia cuts the line and the, the dragon falls, or the serpent falls to the bottom of the ocean and Thor throws his hammer at it. And then Haur says, and some say that he killed the serpent, but I believe that it's still out there, right? So that's like a Christian element of in Nordic mythology, like in the middle of Nordic mythology right there. Because that means then that some people would have actually believed a story where Thor did vanquish the dragon. And that's important, right? Because that means that he is a capable uh, god who actually uh, uh, has the capacity to fight off evil like that. Which, of course, pe people would have believed in in pre-Christian times. Um, so yeah, you have these all these stories about gods fighting evil in the form of a serpent or a dragon, and they also become stories about heroes fighting these dragons. Where Saint George is, of course, the most important one in England. Um, if you go to Scandinavia, you have uh, different folktale versions of a dragon that uh, places itself around a church, and then you either have a hero or a bull that has to fight it. And you have similar types of stories across Europe. Um, ultimately, um, there's also the very interesting Christian version of the the fishing for the Midgard serpent, which is the harrowing of hell, where God fishes for uh, the devil uh, as a dragon using uh, Christ as bait. And that seems to be like a, a like a Christian version of of the story where Thor fishes for the Midgard serpent. 
So it just tells us that the, the story of the, the hero or god fighting the dragon is the most important thing to these people. It's nothing like using your own son as bait, is there? Right. <laughs> Gotta wonder about that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty crazy. I heard the other day um, that the story... It's a little bit uh, off Nordic mythology, but the story of George and the Dragon actually comes from uh, a Greek myth uh, of, of, of a Greek hero fighting a, a serpent, and then that later turned in to that story. Yeah, I mean, we have that uh, the story of Hercules fighting Scylla, um, what is the seven-headed dragon. And yeah, these, this is one of the most ancient stories out there. Uh, of like either a hero or a god that is you know battling uh, a primordial deep sea dragon in I mean go to Babylonia and Marduk and Tiamat um, go to India and uh, we have um, what's the snake called Vitra I think it is and is it Intra that fights it I think so so yeah it's 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 all over the Eurasian continent pretty much. I, I wish there was more that we knew about, like, what the ancient Celts, you know, pre-Christianity, what their stories were, like, around that. Because, obviously, you know, uh, Thor, you know, uh, possibly has roots in the, you know, the, the god uh, Tauranis, um, Tauranis. And that maybe that was something similar, but that's always something that I hope that they dig out, a, you know, a stone or something and find something that fills in some of those pieces. Anyway, uh, before we um, b- before we go off uh, anywhere else, you mentioned uh, when we talked briefly before this that you uh, dug up some stuff about tattooing in the UK, and I am dying to hear what you have to say about it. Oh yeah, so oh yeah, so I have actually been uh, working on a talk I'm going to be doing about Viking Saint tattoos, uh, the Midgardsblot in Norway this summer. Uh, hopefully. Yeah, that will still happen. <laughs> um, and yeah, so the, my 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 research has uh, re- has been uh, pretty interesting so far. Um, so, for those who don't know, Vikings and tattooing, we see Vikings with tattoos all over, you know, uh, popular fiction in um, the Last Kingdom and Vikings and so on. And uh, the question is, did Vikings actually tattoo? And this is something that scholars are still debating a lot. And we only have one source that really says that they tattooed, and that's Ibn Fadlan in 921, who encounters Vikings, presumably, um, on the banks of the Volga River in Russia, and he says that they're tattooed from neck to toenail, um, with uh, images of verdant trees, that's how he puts it. Verdant trees? Yeah, yeah, so like green trees, right? Mm palm trees who knows what that actually means it's really not that clear right it could mean a lot of things it could also mean that he's simply making stuff up or uh, that he is uh, going off on um, you know stereotypes that he knows of other peoples like the henna tattoos from the middle east uh barba tattooing traditions in north africa who knows that that's really unclear um and that's some of the th- criticism that has been directed at uh, the this idea of like Vikings being tattooed, that he might just simply be using stereotypes from his own cultural background. But, um, you know, this, all of this stuff led me to dig into, uh, 
historical references to tattooing in Europe. And it turns out there's a lot when it comes to um, the British Isles. You have Caesar in the Gallic Wars talking about um, uh, tattooed, presumably Celts, right? Um, and that is a standard that then, you know, goes on in... Um, uh, in the Roman historical writings, they, they keep talking about uh, tattooed Britons. And um, and that's, uh, if I can just find it. So we have um, um, several historians, several uh, uh, Roman historians talking about um, tattooing in the British Isles. We have... Um, um, Gaius Julius Solinus um, mentioning that um, there is nothing more that they consider as a test of patience than to have their limbs soak up the maximum amount of dye through these permanent scars, right? Uh, 12th century uh, English writer William of Malmesbury then uh, this is interesting because he's talking about Anglo-Saxons, right? He says in the Deeds of the English King um, he says, the English of those days wore garments of halfway to the knees, which left them unimpeded, uh, hair short, chin shaven, arms loaded with golden bracelets, skin tattooed with colored patterns. Mm. Um, yeah, and uh, it I'm goes on like one. this. No, um, no. That, it's a, that, that's one of the sort of like a, a standard. Uh, uh, it's one of the ones that historians have been discussing a lot because it sounds like he's actually just copying older um, uh, historians. But um, Tacitus also talks about uh, different peoples being tattooed, but he seems to uh, locate them in the Scandinavian area or maybe in the sort of the, the Baltic Sea area. He talks about the Ice Sea. Um, using the mark of a boar or something like that. Um, but even more interesting, though, is um, uh, the reference to uh, Harold Godwinson being tattooed in the Waltham Chronicle, um, where it says that he was... Uh, so the Waltham Chronicle is from the 11th century, and it reports that Harold Govinson's body was identified after the Battle of Hastings um, by his tattoos. One of them apparently said um, uh, England or something like that. And more importantly, and this is the really interesting one, and I have not been able to find the original document. I have only found references in other books to the original document. Um, so I'm going to have to do a little more digging. But... According to um, a book on uh, uh, on tattooing in the British Isles uh, that I was reading, um, there was an edict from the Council of Northumberland in 787. 787, okay? Six years before the attack on Lindisfarne. Um, that's, uh, where they stated, When an individual undergoes the ordeal of tattooing for the sake of God, he is to be greatly praised. But one who submits himself to be tattooed for superstitious reasons in the manner of the heathens will derive no benefit therefrom. Just think about that. Eh? The council in, in Northumberland actually 
like puts out <laughs> a, sort of a verdict on what they think about tattooing. Wow. Yeah, so you would assume that it's happening enough for, for them to, to warrant putting that out there. Exactly, and that it's also happening both among Christians and pagans in Northern Europe at the time. And this makes perfect sense to me. Because, uh, I mean, we know that there's plenty of tattooing going on in Christian times. Oh, yeah, it was a big part of the pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem, and wasn't it? You know, to get tattooed along the way in various places, almost as like a stamp book that you've been there. Oh, yeah, no, they were actually using stamps. Uh, there's a tattoo parlor in Jerusalem that has existed for 700 years. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, tattooing uh, crusaders. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it, it is definitely a Christian tradition. Uh, it's, that doesn't mean that we didn't have periods in time um, in the medieval period where the Catholic Church was heavily against tattooing. But it's like resurges again and again. Well, that's just that's continued into modern ages as well. Like, you know, like say when tattooing came, well, basically, it always does this thing of it goes away for a long time and it comes back. It's always sort of underlying on the, you know, the sailors and the travelers and, uh, you know, so on. But every now and then it comes into the aristocracy, you know, like Queen Victoria's two sons, they one of them had a Chinese dragon or a Japanese dragon, I'm not quite sure. And someone else, had, or one of the other ones, had a big Polynesian piece or something. Oh, and yes. There's references that they found now with tattooing from before, you know, the whole thing with the, the you know, with um, with going over to Australia and meeting, you know, the or making contact with, with all of the Polynesian tribes. They just didn't have the word for tattooing. And that's one of the reasons it's been so difficult to sort of decipher a lot of that. That's, that's a good point that... I never, I never thought of that before. That if you didn't have the, if they didn't use the same word that we use for it, then maybe we don't realize the, the, the you know, what it was. Well, I've heard it um like been called like skin pricks, uh, skin carvings, um, or carvings and dyeing, uh, or you know to dye something uh, or to paint to draw. That's yeah. See, that's what we say. See, uh, Malmesbury. Um, no, wait, the, the other guy, um, one of the two that I just uh, read before, right? He talks about having their skin dyed, right? And um, the Greek word is stigmata. And this is really interesting because there's a lot of talk about stigmata also in St. Paul's letters. And uh, it's tr traditionally like interpreted as like the, you know, piercing of the palms with, um, you know, to emulate Christ's uh, on the cross, but it could also definitely be referring to tattooing. And um, we see the word used in medical books in the Greek world, uh, for instance, in context of having tattoos removed too. Um, so stigmata seems to have been like the word that was used in the Greek speaking world. And yeah, we have to ask ourselves, what was the word that was used in Northern Europe? Typically like, Scandinavian linguists say that, oh, there was no word for that in, in, in Old Norse, for instance. Um, but then again, we do, we do have, you know, rista, uh, which is uh, referring to uh, carving runes that can also be used for carving other things. It, it has five different uh, meanings. Um, there's, no, there's no instance in the literature where it's like rista on skin. But um, but it's not unlikely that it would have been used for that if they did tattoo. 
And I mean, we also have references to people with, uh, you know, different kinds of like dark markings on the skin. Um, a very curious one is uh, the, uh, um, the the name Helia skin. So basically, Hell's skin. Um, some interpret this as reference to people with dark skin color, you know, either people from Asia or Africa. Um, but it could also be a reference to tattooing, because um, remember that Hell, as at least described as uh, in, in Snorristulus and Zeta, uh, has like half uh, you know white skin color and half dark. So this that might be actually uh, what is referred to here. That's at least a, a theory that I'm I'm working with myself. At well, that's the very interesting. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I th I, th I think before we go too far down the rabbit hole of tattooing, we are at over an hour and a half, and I think if we start getting into tattooing now, we're going to be here all night. So I think if if Sean, if you're up for it, maybe what we'll do is we wrap this one up as like a special edition episode, and then we get you back on and literally just go through ta tattooing. Absolutely, I would love to. Yeah, because I think you know we'll, if we get into tattooing now, and especially going into your journey through tattooing, I think we're going to be here for three plus hours <laughs> easily because you know that's there's the whole other episode there. Um, so rather than kind of like mixing the two episodes up and going half and half, let's kind of like cut it now and then we can go and do a f another hour and a half, if not more, just on tattooing, if you two are up for that. I like the sound of that. Yeah, definitely. Are you happy for that, Sean, as well? That sounds good to me. I'd love to, yeah. Yeah, let, let's do that and then people can... Because I think there's a lot of information in this one episode already as well. So I think there's going to be a lot for people to digest for them to start going on to another t a whole other topic. I think if we cut it up, it'll be quite a little bit easier. I agree. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, th this episode has been wonderful. I've been fairly, I've been pretty much a spectator for, for most of it. But, uh, you know, it's wonderful for me to have a, a front row seat to seeing you two just have such a, a good conversation. Well, I've, I've I've really enjoyed it, and uh, it's just so wonderful to get the chance to ask you some questions as well, Matthias. After listening to you guys talk so much, yeah, no, I I've I've really enjoyed it myself, um, and it's 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 I I just think it's great to hear from an artist's perspective on on all of these things. I mean, it's um, uh, you know, academia gets a little dry sometimes, and like people who work with it in a more tangible way, I, I feel like always have such an amazing perspective on on the things that uh, I have mostly just worked with in terms of like books and the occasional trip out there and there and there to the places where you can see him right um, so yeah no I've really enjoyed this yeah it's been it's been a lot of fun and for anybody that, that doesn't already know Sean you can find him on Instagram primarily I think uh, which is at sacred not tattoo um, you can see his work is absolutely beautiful. It's some of the best work I think out there. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, is there any anything else you want to promote whilst you're here, Sean? Um, well, I will just say that uh, I'm going to be releasing a blog on uh, the Picts and their art uh, very soon, and that will be available on Northern Fire. Um, I will also share it on my Instagram as well and and Facebook, and you can find it there. Cool. Yeah, and just to second that, I think, is the Instagram for Northern Fire just at Northern Fire? 
Um, yes, yes, it is. Yeah, and I think the website's just www.northernfire.com. Is it? Uh, that's northernfiredesigns.com. Designs.com. There you go. May as well get get that out there. Yeah. Wonderful. Um. Right. Yeah. So let's wrap this up. Thank you very much, Sean. It's been it's been a pleasure as always. Oh, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. See you later. Bye. Mm-hmm.